Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Lois. Thank you all for singing out. We are working our way through the Gospel of John, a tremendous gospel that shows us the life of Jesus Christ and, and who he is. We are in the midst of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is when our Lord met with his disciples the night before his crucifixion and had some parting final words with them as he taught them and equipped them and prepared them. Our text today before us is uh, John chapter 14, verses 19 through 24. But uh, I want to go back and get a little context. And I'll start back at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, you and me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, our Lord is getting ready to leave them. They understand that. You know, when, when Philip will ask, you know, show us, the, where, where are we going? Show us, or, or Thomas will say, show us the way. He, they, Jesus is telling them, I am about to leave you. And that has them anxious. Uh, sometimes children will wrestle with that, won't they? When the parent says to them, I'm going to leave you. And depending on the age, some ages, you know, they'll say, here, can I open the door for you? <laughs> so long. Don't rush. Younger ages, oh, no, I can't, I can't survive if you walk out of this room. These disciples have spent three years in the presence of Jesus. He told them where they were going, when they were going. He taught them. He guided them. He protected them. 
And now uh, they're in Jerusalem. They've been anxious about this. They know that the, the, the tension is rising. The hostility is rising. Jesus, you're leaving. You're leaving us. You're leaving us here. And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you know the way. And, and, they're, and, and they're, so they're confused and they're anxious. What are we going to do? How are we going to do? And Jesus is trying to give them comfort. He says in verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He speaks in ways that, again, remember, I, I, I see Jesus using what I call the, uh, he teaches by confusion. He says things that, that you have to say, what do you mean by that? And it, it's a way of opening up and being teachable. Lord, what do you mean? And so he says, a little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Again, he, what has he just said? I will, leave, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So he said, I'm leaving, but I'm not forsaking you. I'm not abandoning you. I'm, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not, I'm not leaving you by yourselves. I will come to you. And the Holy Spirit will come to you. Here, in this, he's starting to explain more in this passage. He's speaking of his death and resurrection. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. What does he mean by that? That's when he dies and he's buried. The world, that's the end of his public ministry. When he's resurrected, they don't see that. That begins an intensely personal ministry to his disciples. After the crucifixion, once his body is buried, the world sees him no more. Jesus' public ministry in that way is over for them, the world, but it's not over for the disciples. So he's speaking of his death. The world's not going to see me because I'm dying. See, there, he hasn't completely laid it out to them in that clear language. Tomorrow I will die on a cross. Now, when he went to Jerusalem, on the way he told them, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, taken and executed. Remember earlier when he said that to Peter, and Peter's response was, uh, no, Lord, no, don't talk like that. And Jesus had to tell him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus has been trying to prepare them, but they haven't wanted to hear it. Some of the students among us, school started up. As August came along, parents were telling them, it's coming. School is starting. Parents said the words, but the children were not hearing it. And then all of a sudden, the horror is upon them. No, they're being awakened. It's still dark. They're having to put on different kinds of clothes. And they're being hustled off to this other place. Oh, they had been told, but they didn't quite get it. Jesus has been telling them, this is what's coming. And now he says, I'm going in a way that the world will never see me again, but you will. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. When he dies, the world, the Romans, and the Jewish leaders are thinking, it's done. We solved our problem. It's finished. We're not going to have any more problems with Jesus. 
couldn't have been more wrong. But they'll figure that out in time. But for now, he's saying, the world will not see me, but you will. So if the world thought it was all over for, for Jesus with his death, the disciples will learn otherwise. Uh, Jesus is going to rise again, and they'll see him again. Now again, remember, they were not expecting that. Jesus had told them. But they weren't expecting it. And so when the women came back, remember, and said, we, we'll see. The Lord's, first they said the, the tomb is empty. They must have stolen his body. But then the Lord appeared to some women. Then they came and said, we've seen him. He's risen. And the, the men wouldn't believe it. You poor dears. The grief has gotten to you. Until finally, reports start trickling in. Peter has seen him. The ones on the road to Emmaus, remember they saw him. And, and finally Jesus walks into the room and... There he is. The world no longer sees him, but his disciples do. And notice that's going to be an important theme to watch for. All along, Jesus has made a distinction between people. And here he's drawing a distinction between the unbelieving world and his followers. For the unbelieving world, his offer of mercy is over. His presence among them, his miracles, that's, that's over. But his ministries to his disciples continues. The broad public ministry of Jesus, done. Now he's going to focus on the private ministry to his disciples. So he says in verse 20, um, At that day you will, see, you, will, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Okay, one of the questions we ask is, what's that day? Well, he's talking about the resurrection. So at the resurrection, it, they'll start understanding that Jesus is in the Father. And, and, and all this, this, this union with God that comes through Christ, that becomes even clearer at, the, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and is teaching them. But he's, he's saying, my departure is going to be good news for you. You'll know that I'm in my Father. My Father, and, and you are in me, and I in you. Um, some have pointed out, you could say that when we, he says, you will be in me, uh, that's our standing in Christ, our status in Christ. And then when you see I in you, that is his, his enabling and, and blessing of us. He's not leaving them forsaken orphans. It's going to get so much better. This God in them. They in Christ. See, they're going to look at that cross and say, it's over. It's finished. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? As they're walking along and Jesus kind of hides his identity and comes up and says, what are you talking about? And they said, oh... We thought we knew the Messiah. I guess we were wrong. Actually, they were, had been right. They just had the program wrong. They thought as they saw Jesus die, it's over. And Jesus is trying to tell them, no, it's actually 
getting better. This was a painful but necessary step for the good part. Now the good begins. He's going to be giving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and, and the Holy Spirit will teach them and grow them in understanding and all they have in Christ. They'll learn and understand, and when I say learn and understand, it's something that we have a hard time still understanding. But their, their, their relationship to God the Father, to God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're going to understand that the Son is in the Father. That there's a union between Father and Son. They have a relationship. And John began, remember, in verse 1, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And so they're going to get a better sense of, of, of Jesus is not just another rabbi. He's not even just a Messiah. He is one with God the Father. I have to imagine when they finally started sinking in, they started looking back to those three years and say, how could we have missed it? We were in the presence of God himself. But they're going to grow in understanding that, that Christ the Son is in the Father. And more than that, he says, you in, and, we will, there, and we are in Christ. That's one of the phrases Paul loves most. He talks about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Interestingly, in the Greek language, when it says we believe in Christ, that word in, literally in the Greek, is the preposition into. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we are, we are being planted in Christ. You could borrow some of Paul's language when he talks about grafting in you know, how the Gentiles are grafted into the blessings that came through Abraham. We may, not, if, we may not do a lot of grafting, but maybe you're familiar with the idea. Sometimes you take a tree, and if you want to put a, get a different variety of, say, a pecan on it, the natives are great, but uh, you need a hammer and an anvil to get a little bit of meat out of them. You want a, you want a, a better variety, you can graft in a branch. You you actually put that branch and unite it to the tree. So it's in the tree, and the tree is in that branch. We are being grafted into Christ so that his life surges through us. Uh, they, frankly, these are hard things to grasp because you, it's not something you can put your hands on, not something you can see. But he's saying there is, going, there is a spiritual energy and union being brought about by the Holy Spirit. You are not going to be abandoned. You're coming in to great blessing. Instead of being left and abandoned, we're going to be in union with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. God will be in us by the Holy Spirit, Christ in us. Over in First Timothy or in First Corinthians, Paul will apply that and say, "Don't you realize you're a temple of the Holy Spirit?" We we hear that language and it doesn't do much for us, like it would have for them as Jews. The temple was the was a a unique place in the world. The temple for God in Jerusalem 
It was a place where God would manifest his presence. We call it the Shekinah glory. The glory of God's presence was in that place like no other place in the world. God was there in that temple. Now, Solomon understood. How do you, how do you grasp that? And, and so Solomon prayed, said when he was dedicating the temple, he built the temple. It was a glorious building to reflect God's glory. But he, in, in 1 Kings 8, 26, he said, Now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I've built. Now, he spared no expense. It was a glorious building, but he said, Can God dwell in this building? But because he did, it became such a sacred place. Everything about it was sacred and how you approached it and what you did there. Because God dwelled in it. Again, that's a hard concept for us to get. It, I think it might have been driven well into the Jews as they approached the temple and thought about that. But here's a harder concept. If it's hard to understand that God would dwell in a building, a glorious building. Jesus is telling us here and other places in the New Testament that God dwells within us. And so Paul can say, you're a temple. You are a temple where God resides. When you went to the temple, you had to be very careful. You know, taking off your shoes or being cleansed clothing and whatever it might be, you had to be, you had to be ritually pure before you could enter into the temple. And yet, we are a temple. God dwells in us as much as he dwelled in that temple. Each, every one believer here today is a walking temple. A place where God's holiness resides. I wonder how that would transform our lives if we really grasped that. You had to be careful how you behaved in the temple. What does that say to us if we are the temple? If God the holy if, if if the holy God dwells within us, does that suggest we need to be careful where we take his holy presence? Are there places that the temple of God does not belong? Are there behaviors that just have no place for it in a temple? What Jesus is trying to comprehend is as they're within the shadow of the temple as he's having this dinner with them. You're about to become temple of the Holy One. He goes on to say more as in, in verse, uh, as, as he continues, he says uh, in verse 20, that day you'll know that I'm in my Father and you and me and I and you. In verse 19, he said, because I live, you will live also. 
there he's speaking of the resurrection. And when he said there, he said, I'm about to be raised from the dead because I will be alive. You will live. He said, so, so what he's saying is his resurrection assures our resurrection. And I've shared with you a number of times that that to me is one of the most precious of thoughts. When I am standing by a grave of a believer in the cemetery, my mind goes forward to the day when one day that grave will be empty. That body lifted out, transformed just as Jesus was. And so when we go to that cemetery and we leave that, and I, and I like to say we're leaving that body in sacred trust, like a safety deposit box where you leave your great treasure. But there it, we, we leave that body, but God isn't finished with it yet. And there's an incredible hope that we walk away from that grave that that beloved one will rise again in Christ. And so what he is saying now, I'm going to leave but then you will see me again, resurrection. And because I live, you will live. The empty tomb in Jerusalem is the promise that our tomb will be emptied and will be united with Christ when he calls his people to join him. And so Paul, John, Jesus is telling his disciples, this isn't a time to despair. I know it's hard. But it's going to be, this is a hard path to, to a glorious future. Don't give up. Verses 21 and through 24, he, he speaks more about how they're to live in his absence. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. See, they're worried, you're leaving us. You're leaving us as orphans. No, no, no. I'm not leaving you. We still have a loving relationship. And what I'm saying is because we have a loving relationship, how do you show that love? He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. The believer has Christ's commandments. And notice he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Now, having the commandments doesn't mean they're in a book back home or getting really fancy. They're, I've even got 12 versions of them sitting in here. Uh, he's not saying that is in having, but in the sense that it's held in my heart, in my life. He who has my commandments and keeps, does them, is showing their love for Christ. So it's not just knowing what he wants of us, it's doing. That's how we show our love. That our obedience to Christ is, is our way of showing our love for him. It's the fruit of our love for him. That's the point. If we love Christ, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. And so he's saying, this is the evidence of your love for me, is your obedience. See, he's getting ready to leave. Parents, have you ever had a little lecture before you walk out of the room or leave the house and you lay down the law and then with great faith or fear or both you wonder what's going to happen while you're gone. How many a teacher 
has laid down the law, they have to step out of the room for a minute. I went to school in the ancient days. They did not have cameras in the classrooms. That teacher left and in blind faith wondered what would happen. Would there be a room when they returned? Jesus is giving them some direction. I'm leaving. And notice he's not speaking fierce fire and wrath. I will blast you if you don't do this or do that. But rather he's saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. You will show your love for me. You're you're here complaining because I'm leaving. I know your love for me. But let me remind you, you show that love by obedience. That's what he said back in verse 15, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. And and what he's saying is that obedience will, will be evidence of the love and love for Christ is, de- is a defining truth of a believer. I'd like to read you some other passages of Scripture that show that. Love for Christ is, is a defining characteristic of a believer. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, uh, uh, in, chapters, in verse 7, uh, Peter speaks of the genuineness of our faith. But in verse 8, he speaks of our relationship to Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Peter was so kind, and maybe maybe he was digging them a little bit. I've seen Christ. But what he's really saying is, I've seen Christ and I love him. The amazing thing is, by God's grace in our life, we love someone we've never seen, except by the eyes of faith. And so he says, to, but this, this describes every believer. By faith, we love this one we've never seen. Um, again, other passages. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Paul says this, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. What's he saying there? Those who don't love Christ are not believers. They're under God's judgment. Because love is a defining characteristic. Love for Christ is a defining characteristic of a believer. 1 John 4.19, John says, We love him because he first loved us. So this is important. A lot of times we say, what is a believer? What, is, what, what really is essential in the life of a believer? Is it you know, going to church? Is it doing this or doing that or not doing this or not doing that. Throughout the scripture, we say that the defining characteristic of a believer is someone who loves Jesus Christ by faith. Well, how do I know I love Jesus Christ? Is it because I get warm feelings at Christmas? How do I know I love Jesus Christ? And he gives us that answer too. If you love me, you'll obey me. Now, we obey some people because we're afraid of them. We obey some people because we want to keep our job. We obey some people because we don't want to lose our driver's license. But we obey Christ because we love him. And the last thing we want to do is break his heart by our disloyalty. Our love is a defining essential 
to what it means to be a Christian. And that love will be shown by a heart of obedience. That's a test of life. Recently, we got, I got a notice. It was one of those strange texts from the uh, Encore. And they said, uh, the power has gone off in your neighborhood. And I looked and I don't think so. <laughs> and then they said, well, it'll come back all later. Then they sent me a notice and say, it's going to come back. Oh, it's back. Now, some, we've gone through some of these where the power is out and you wonder, has, is it back on? And, you know, there's that really rigorous test you can apply. You go flip the little switch on the wall. If there's light in the room, the power is on. But Jesus is saying, here's the test. The test of love for Christ is the obedience that is energized, that flows from that love. Spurgeon said this, and I apologize, it's probably been two, three weeks since I've quoted Mr. Spurgeon. The things you loved before your conversion, you will hate them when you believe, and the things you hated, you will love. Isn't that true? You get an unbeliever and say, hey, guess what? We're going to go into a conference, and it'll be all-day Bible teaching. And they'll say, why don't you just whip me with thorn vines? <laughs> why would I want to do that? But a believer, are you kidding me, to get to hear God's word? Spurgeon goes on, when once you have received salvation through the blood of Christ, your heart will love God, and then you'll keep his commandments, and they will no longer be grievous to you. Take a young couple in love. You tell that young man that's maybe been away in the service or been away on a business trip or whatever it may be, and he gets to finally come back and see his loved one. Does he think, oh, I guess I've got to go over and spend some time with her? No. <laughs> you know, he does. He say, well, maybe I should take a nap. No, I'm going to get over there. We'll sleep later. Love drives him. Love drives his behavior. Um, Aretta Loving was a Wycliffe missionary. One day she was washing her breakfast dishes when she saw Jimmy, the five-year-old neighbor, headed straight toward the back porch. She had just finished painting the back porch handrails, and she was proud of her work. Did, did you realize missionaries sometimes do things like painting handrails? Do you see this, where this is going, right? Uh, she yelled out, come around to the front door, Jimmy, and, and, and there's wet paint on the porch rails. I'll be careful, Jimmy replied, not turning from his path. No, Jimmy, don't come up the stairs, she shouted. I'll be careful, he said again, by now dangerously close to the steps. Jimmy, stop. I don't want carefulness. I want obedience. As the words burst from her mouth, she suddenly remembered Samuel's response to King Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. How would Jimmy respond, Aretta wondered. To her relief, he shouted back, All right, loving, I'll go around to the front door. Remember, that was her last name. And he was the one person in the village that called her loving. He was, um, and so... As he, as he turned around that house, Aretta thought to herself, how often am I like Saul or like Jimmy, wanting to go my own way? I rationalize, I'll be careful, Lord, as I proceed with my own plans. He doesn't want carefulness. He wants obedience. 
John went on, Jesus went on, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and, and manifest myself to him. Now, if, as I read that, if you love me, you'll obey me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. Well, don't you remember the verse I just read earlier, 1 John four nineteen? We love him because he first loved us. So now he's saying he'll love us because we love him. The, the love that comes first is a saving love. But now he's talking about that relational love. The more we love him and obey him and draw near to him, the more he will love us and draw near to us. If we hold him at, at arm's length, then that's where he stays. But the more we lovingly serve him, the more we lovingly worship him, the more we lo- are loving toward him, the more we'll experience his love. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, Jesus said. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the, when we love him, we obey him. And when we love him, we draw near to him. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And so that loving obedience becomes a richly rewarding relationship. In salvation, it's the Lord who initiates. Saving love is not in this. This is, this is relational love. And as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we'll experience that love more and more. Christ says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. So he's telling us about a growing relationship with the Lord. Trusting in Christ as Savior, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of a wonderful walk together. I've done a few weddings. When I look at those couples, all kinds of thoughts go through my mind. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I could go on. I could preach a couple of sermons just recounting the kinds of thoughts that are spinning through my mind as, as I help this couple walk through this, this moment. One of the things that strikes me often is these two kids don't even know each other. <laughs> they're, they're, they're on and on about how much they love each other. They don't have a clue. <laughs> And, you know, give, get down and talk to them and 10 years later and they'll say, How, what did you, we were strangers, I had no idea. They learn all these things. And what's really wonderful is in a good and healthy relationship, they don't have a clue what it means to love each other. Five, 10 years down the road, that love is, is maturing, ripening, sweetening. By God's grace, and it should be ambition, that, that, would, that continues. We get to know each other more. We get to love each other more. As we go through these adventures of life, we're drawn together. That's a picture of our Christian life. He loves us, so we love him, saving faith. And now, loving him, we want to serve him. And as we draw near in service, he draws near to us. And it's a growing love relationship with the Lord. The ambition should be at the end of our lives in marriage, we should be more dearly attached than before. And the ambition should be that as we grow in Christ, we are growing closer and closer to him each day and each year. And I would suggest that that continues in heaven. You know, sometimes we, uh, we'll get the idea that when we get to heaven, we'll know everything God knows. It can't be. He's God. We're creatures. And so I think through eternity, we will be growing in our appreciation of him.
we'll be, we'll, we'll be knowing more of him. I, I think we'll be growing in our love for him. And, and so that's the picture here of the Christian life is we draw near to him. He draws near to us. Judas, not Iscariot. Poor Judas. How would you like the name Judas? I mean, <laughs> the rest of his life, well, probably, you know, when he goes to those fellowship things, he just has the badge, not, a, not Iscariot. Just, you know, hi, my name's Judas. Don't ask. <laughs> That's, that guy's dead. <laughs> um, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Okay, Lord, you, but you were told this just in the upper room, I mean, just in the, um, on the Mount of Olives, in the Olivet Discourse. John doesn't record it. The other Gospels do. Just across the Brook Kidron, sitting over there looking at the temple, you told, told, told us about how you're going to come and the whole world will see you. What's happened? That was, that was this week. Now you're saying the world won't see you. Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What's going on? Just in passing, I, I like what this shows us about their relationship. You see how they could ask Jesus questions? What a relationship that Jesus would let them ask questions and would answer. And I, I also imagine this is one of those ones where um, some of the others were thinking, good job, Judas, because <laughs> they're wrestling with the same question. Yeah, well, yeah, what, what is going on? Jesus answered and said to, them, to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, when I first 10, 12 times I read that, my reaction is, but he didn't answer the question. Again, going back to days in school, have you ever had that where you ask a question and the teacher's answer? Wait a minute. You didn't answer the question. Kids will get that all the time from their parents, right? But, but, But you didn't answer my question. He actually does. Why won't they see you? And so he says there's two kinds of people. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him, will come to him and make our home with him. Um, And so he's saying that's the believer. They will see God through the eyes of faith. They will commune with him. He'll he'll come and, 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 and he'll be... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will make our home with a believer. There's a book I read years ago, My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a great book. It's challenging. It talks about bringing Christ into the home. and um, One of the things that it brings in, it's interesting, Jesus is coming to visit and they open up the door, but there's this one closet we really don't want Jesus looking in. So guess where Jesus goes? Oh, no, Jesus, don't go in there. Why not? And so it really challenges. Is, is, Christ, is my heart really Christ's home? Is he welcome throughout? And, but that's another story. But here's the amazing thing. Christ is at home in our life. And by the way, the word home here is used earlier in chapter 14. In my house are many mansions. Same word. As our ambition is to live in a dwelling place, place in in, in God's heaven. God comes 
and has a dwelling place in our heart. Do we really think about that? Do we really comprehend that God has, is at home in my life? I think that's transforming truth. So he said, so, so Judas is asking, wait a minute, why will we see you and they not? What does Jesus say? Those who love me, those who believe in me, those who love me, I, I come and dwell within them. But verse 24, he who does not love me, that's the world. He who does not love me, he does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so once again, Jesus is making it clear. It's clear. There's two groups. Those who've trusted Christ as Savior and those who haven't. Those who have God's word in their heart and those who don't. Those who love God and those who don't. Those whose obedience shows their love for God and those who are not interested in obeying God. They're going to live their own way. And those who know and love God, then, then he comes and dwells with them. And those who don't are strangers to God. And that will continue into eternity. And we talked about that in our catechism question at the beginning of the service. And so as Jesus is leaving, he's saying, I'm leaving, but it's for your good. You're really good. Because though I am leaving, we're coming back to dwell within you. And so just some closing thoughts, if you will. We said it last time, we'll say it again. Too often we think love and obedience are contradictory. No, true love is truly obedient. If you love me, keep my commandments. A preacher of the previous generation, Vance Havner, used to said this. Obedience is becoming a lost doctrine these days. Parents and teachers are advised to ask not obedience, but cooperation of children and students. My father never asked me to cooperate. If I hadn't cooperated, he would have operated. <laughs> so the reminder... Grace does not deny obedience. Grace inspires and enables obedience. Because we love him. We want to please him. My dog sometimes, will, she'll will go through this little routine where I'll get her to lie down and sit up and, and follow me. And, and, and with, there's such excitement, she's just shivering. It might be because of the treat I have in my hand, but I'd like to think it's because she wants to please me. But in this passage, what an incredible truth the Lord teaches. And it's almost in passing, isn't it? He makes himself at home in the life of the believer. Again, Paul can't get over that and says, if, if Christ is in us, if we're the temple of God, how do we treat the temple? How do we act in the presence of God's holiness? And that same holiness that's within us 
is the holiness that terrified the, the Israelites. And they said, we don't want to go to Mount Sinai. Moses, you go up and talk to God. And that holiness dwells within us. Those who love God and obey God are not super saints. That is the minimum description of a believer. Now we grow in that love and we grow in that obedience. But loving Christ and obeying him is not some upper level Christian. That's a defining of a Christian. Again, not that the obedience wins you salvation. But having been saved and changed, you obey, you love. And then he says, too, a true child of God is not someone who simply agrees with some doctrines or cl- and, and claims the title of Christian. Have you ever met someone and say, are you Christian? Oh, yeah, I know that Jesus died for my sins. And you can almost hear they're starting to rattle off what they heard in church for 20 years. But what does that mean for you? <laughs> Could you explain that more? Have you, did you ever come to a time when you personally trusted in Christ as Savior? What do you mean by that? And I often think, getting back to the idea of marriage, have you ever asked someone, are you married? And they say, well, I'm not sure. What does that mean? (laughs) You either did or did not show up at the wedding and say, I do. (laughs) There's a moment in time when the life begins. Now, granted, for some of us, that's kind of vague. We might say, well, I was in a transition. But the question is, are you trusting in Christ now? Is Christ your Savior? Are you showing it? Here's the test. Do you love him? Do you obey him? If that doesn't describe you, may I make a suggestion? Now's a good time to turn from your sin to the Savior who would be delighted to forgive your sin on the basis of the cross. And trust in him as Savior. Hear his love. And trust in him. And, 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 and hear what I've been talking about this morning. This isn't some, some thing saying, okay, now you're going to 80 years of boot camp and then you die. No. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ inviting you. To the most incredible thought of all. A loving relationship with God as your father. Who dwells within you. And grows more and more. In a loving relationship with you. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the invitation and trust in him. For those of us who do. May God help us to take this thought home. Christ in me the hope of glory. God, the Holy One, dwelling within. My life, a temple, a dwelling place of God. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. I confess, hard to get our minds and hearts fully around these truths, but we profess they're true. Lord, how I pray we would grow in the reality of these truths. For I do pray it in Jesus' name.